Hello, everyone. Can you? Is my mic on? Great. Hi. Um, so today we're um, carrying on looking at these themes of Christ as centre. We've looked at Christ as centre um, to starting out as a Christian, Christ as centre to growing in maturity. And today we're talking about, again, an issue of maturity, but growing into a Christ-centred community. And we're looking um, at this theme from the book of Ephesians. So if you want to um, grab your Bible straight off and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, because this is going to be our passage, and we'll read it through. Now, the big themes of this passage, which kind of jump out, but I'm just going to warn you so you can look for them, are the themes of unity, diversity, and maturity. Unity, diversity, and maturity. So as I read the passage, um, if you look out for those themes, I might kind of highlight them in the way I read it. Um, So I'm going to read from, I think I'll read from the beginning of chapter 4 down to um, verse 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Jump on to verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will, gr- we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Great. So, there's a lot to dig into in this passage, and we're going to enjoy kind of trying to unravel Paul's quite, um, or characteristically, quite intertwined, dense argument. Um, But just wanting to notice, to kick off, how he starts... He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is, in actual fact, a turning point in Paul's letter. In the first three chapters, Paul's been outlining God's great plan for the church. And now in these last um, three chapters, he starts saying how we live um, according to what God's done for them, how we live in a manner worthy of of the calling. So if I was to split the book up into two, I'd have it like this. I'd have Ephesians 1 to 3 as seeing what we are, and Ephesians 4 as being what we are. So the first half, seeing what we are, second half, being what we are. In fact, what I'd say for this chapter is growing into 
what we are, which is an interesting idea, growing into what we are. Um, and so I want to, when my first point, what I wanted to do is um, spend a bit of time looking at this first half, this seeing what we are, seeing what we are. And what I wanted to see is that in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul presents us as the world's only hope for authentic community. It's a big claim, isn't it? The church, he's talking about the church, the world's only hope for authentic community. So that's going to take some defending, and I just want us to spend a bit of time thinking about um, what it means, why the church, according to Paul's view, this is what we are, this is what we are, the world's only hope for authentic community. So community is a big theme, and community um, is something that I think in our modern world we long for. We really long for it. So this is um, a psychologist called M. Scott Peck. He wrote a lot about community. Let me read it to you. He says this. He says, We human beings have often been referred to as social animals, but we are not yet community creatures. We are impelled to relate with each other for our survival, but we do not yet relate with the inclusivity, realism, self-awareness, vulnerability, commitment, openness, freedom, equality, and love of genuine community. It is clearly no longer enough to be simply social animals, babbling together at cocktail parties and brawling with each other in business and over boundaries. It is our task, our essential, central, (laughs) crucial task, to transform ourselves from mere social creatures into community creatures. So do you see what he's saying? He said, although we long for community, what characterises normally is either hostility or superficiality. We long for community, but what characterises us is hostility or superficiality. Babbling together at cocktail parties or brawling with each other in business. We do business with each other, we have superficial relationships with each other. But do we have real, authentic community? This guy thinks that doesn't really characterise us, even though that is deep, we deeply long for such a thing. So we long, to put it another way, for unity in diversity. That's what community is, isn't it? Unity in diversity. And so we long for unity and diversity, but so often what we end up with is not unity, but uniformity. Okay, so here's a, um, here's a quote. Do you know where that's from? This is Doctor Who. This is the, uh, a guy called the controller in Doctor Who. And he had this vision for humanity where basically he turned everyone into robots. And he said, that's unity. That's unity. There's perfect world peace. But everyone walks the same. Everyone does exactly the same thing. It's not unity, it's uniformity, because unity without diversity is merely uniformity. And that's what you see in these kind of totalitarian regimes, where for the sake of trying to bring peace, for the sake of trying to hold people together in unity, what they do is oppress people and stifle diversity. They prevent people from being themselves, from being different. They restrict individual freedom and expression institutions where the needs of the big of the corporation, the needs of the institution comes over and above the needs of the individual, the organisation or the church. So this approach seeks to deal with conflict and hostility by oppressing people, by suppressing differences, by suppressing um, diversity and imposing uniformity. So that's one approach the world takes to, to breeding unity. Our culture tends to reject this approach emphatically. Um, And we go for a different approach. Whereas these institutions try to 
um, by unity at the cost of diversity, our culture seeks at all costs to protect diversity, but very often at the sake of unity. Our culture is one, therefore, of individualism. We are individuals and our individualism must be protected at all costs. And so we keep ourselves from um, hostility by avoiding other people, by not letting people into our lives. This is another quote. Um, Hugh Grant in About a Boy, um, a book written by Nick Hornby. He speaks at the beginning of the film about his philosophy of life. He's, um, it starts off with him watching He Wants to Be a Millionaire or something. And the question is, who said all men, no man is an island? And that gets him waxing lyrical. He says, in my opinion, all men are islands. And what's more, now's the time to be one. This is an island age. A hundred years ago, you had to depend on other people. No one had TV or CDs or DVDs or videos or home expressing makers. Actually, they didn't have anything cool. Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. <laughs> so, in this view of life, the, you're the centre of your universe. Whereas in the kind of uniformity view, the centre of the universe is something that everyone has to, is something over there that everyone has to conform to. In this view, we protect our diversity by each becoming our own little centre of the universe. The most important thing in my world is that I express my needs and my desires. But you see, just though both approaches seek to solve conflict in some way, neither achieve it, because in both cases, in the case of uniformity and in the case of individualism, the other person, the different person, is a threat. In uniformity, in, in kind of totalitarian regimes, what is different is a threat. What doesn't fit in? In individualism, anyone other than you is a threat. If I'm the centre of my universe, you're the centre of your universe, he's the centre of his universe, the centre of the universe very quickly becomes crowded. And there's conflict again. So we long for community. We long to be free from conflict and hostility. We long to go beyond superficialism. And yet we don't very often achieve it. And into this, the Gospel speaks. So I want to turn straight now to Ephesians um, chapter 2. Okay? So if you turn to that, and I'm going to try and give you a, literally a five-minute overview of the whole of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, let's just flick on. So, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, offers us what is a kind of gospel outline, really, that we're quite familiar with. We're really used to this idea. Um, it starts off by saying what we were, then it says what God did. There's a big but in the middle of the passage. Um, verse 4, you can probably see it, but because of his great love for us. Um, and then what we are now. And what we were is we were objects of wrath. We were living our own way, we were uh, bound up in sin, we were slaves to our sin, we were dead in fact. And Paul says, but now God has made us alive with Christ. We have been united with God. So in this case, the gospel, the good news that Paul's outlining, is about us being connected with God. It's about us being connected with God. But then, in verse 11, he starts off again by saying what we were. And as you look down, there's another but. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on again and says, what we are now. And this time, the outline's not about us being connected with God. It's about us being connected with each other. He says in 
verse um, 15, he said, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father through the Spirit. So you see what he's saying. He's saying the good news of Christianity, the message of Christianity, is not just about us connecting with God as individuals. It's about us, at the very core, about us connecting with each other. Just as we're united with God, so the Gospel says we are united, we are brought together with each other. Our hostility is overcome, it's been put to death, and we have been made one, one body, both with access to the Father by the Spirit. And you see, these aren't two different things. These aren't two different things. Because the God of the Gospel is himself a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when we're invited to God, when we're welcomed in, when we're brought to God, we're welcomed in to the community of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving one another. The gospel is about being welcomed in to this community of love. And so when God draws us to himself, it's never about just us and God. It's about us together being drawn into this community of love. And so when Jesus prays for us, he says, may they be one as we are one. That's a big thing, isn't it? Just as Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one in unity, so are we to be one. We're to be one with God. He says, may they be in us, as, may they be in me as I am in you. May, be, may they be one just as we are one, may they be one with us, but also may they be one with each other. The whole of the gospel is about drawing, not just us in connection with God, it's about drawing us all together as one. And it's a profound unity. Paul's favourite metaphor for the church is a body. It's a body, a single body. When Mo Farah won the Olympics, he got a gold medal and he put that medal around his neck. Now his neck didn't do anything really, did it? It could have been anyone's neck that was connecting his head to his body. It was his legs that did all his work. But what, it would have been so weird if he'd taken the medal and said, I'm not going to put it around my neck, I'm going to tie it to my leg, because it was my leg that did all the work. I mean, which leg would he tie it to? I suppose he won two gods, so he could have done one on each. But the, um, relay, but the relay team, on the other hand, they each got a medal. The Jamaican relay team, they each got a gold medal. They got four gold medals, but Mo Farah got one gold medal because he is one body. The unity that Paul's talking about as a body, a single body, is profound. He's saying we are one. We really are one. Just as Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one, so we also are one. And that, says Paul, is what we are. And we say, well, it really doesn't feel like it. And so Paul says in chapter 4, what we need to do is grow up. We need to grow into this unity. We need to grow into what we are. And so this is our main theme. So if you want to turn back to chapter 4. And I've just got two points. Growing up into what we are means being built up. Paul kind of mixes his metaphors. Um, I'm not sure why actually, but rather than talking about growing up, in both times he talks about being built up. 
Okay? But growing up into what we are means being built up in truth and built up in love. Built up in truth and built up in love. And if we just pause for a minute and I'll find where I am in my notes. Um, Okay, great. So, let's look at built up in truth, first of all. Built up in truth. So, to grow in unity, we need to be built up in truth and built up in love. The classic statement of this is where he says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into him who is the head. So, part of our growing up in unity involves growing up in truth, being built up in truth, and being built up in love. First of all then, built up in truth. Did you see that in the passage? He says, um, probably the clearest place he says it is um, verse 13. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. He says this was the reason we had apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. These are all kind of truth communicators. And he says, we, so that we have this in the body of Christ, we built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So unity has a, what we could call a doctrinal basis. It is based on truth. Now, that sounds a slightly jarring phrase, doesn't it? That doesn't sound at all promising, especially, I think, in our culture. We don't like the sound of unity and doctrine in the same sentence. What have those two things got to do with each other? Surely, doctrine and unity um, are in conflict with each other. It's because of doctrinal differences that people um, argue and fight. But the reason is, is because the truth about Jesus matters. The truth about Jesus matters, and in fact, it matters more than our unity. The truth about Jesus matters more than our unity because our unity is about Jesus. Our unity is centred on Jesus. When Jesus prays for unity in John 17, he prays very specifically for those who believe in him through the message of the apostles. In fact, a few verses earlier, he says, set them apart, set my followers apart by your truth. And so in a sense, he's saying, doctrine, the truth about Jesus, will divide people. It will separate people from each other. But he's saying this has to be the case because he wants unity, not just to be about unity for the sake of unity, he wants our unity to be about him. And there are true things to say about Jesus and there are false things to say about Jesus. And the difference between those things matters more than anything else in the world. I used to um, go around when I met people and pretend that I, one of my hobbies was bodybuilding. <laughs> and people say, um, uh, how, what, what do you like doing? I used to say I like bodybuilding. Mainly because I like to just meet someone who took that on face value. <laughs> no one ever took that on face value. They all were either sniggered or kind of um, raised their eyebrows. But anyway, just say someone did take that on face value and they accepted that it was true, that I was someone who liked bodybuilding. And then they met Nate and they said, 
oh, I've met your husband, John. He's the one who likes bodybuilding. And they would say, no, he's not. You're talking about someone different. <laughs> You're talking about someone different. Christ-centered unity, unity around the person of Jesus Christ, means there's true things to say about him and there's false things to say about him. And those differences really matter because our unity has to be about Jesus. It has to be about Jesus. And it's really, really tempting to make for ourselves fake Jesuses. To start kind of adapting the things we think about Jesus. So we've got our own little Jesus that we can believe in. And you see then, it's not about Jesus anymore. It's about a little Jesus that I've invented. It's tempting to do that because I can then have a Jesus who is just like anyone I'd like him to be. He can be a Jesus that fits perfectly with my own particular spiritual preferences and temperaments. But Jesus wants us to be united around him. He wants to be our head. It has to be about him, and therefore it matters what we say about him. Unity has a doctrinal basis. He says, if we don't have that, we will no longer we will be still be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men. If not doctrinal purity that we unite around. Some people say we have to agree on absolutely everything. That's not the case. We don't have to agree on baptism and other things. We talk a lot about this in CU because in Christian unions, lots of different churches are working together. Therefore, we have to work out the things that really matter. We make a distinction between issues of primary importance and issues of secondary importance. And the church has divided lots and lots of times over issues of secondary importance, but that's not centred on Jesus either. When you divide over baptism and you say, I'm only going to unite with people who agree with me about the way you baptise people, you're saying that's central. That's the main thing. Now we say Jesus is central. He's the main thing. But the truth about him really matters. There's more to knowing Jesus than believing facts about him. But as... Um, the fact that I'm not a bodybuilder shows you there's nothing, it's not less than that either. It's not less than that either. So, although it doesn't seem hopeful, we've got to abandon that. There's no hope for unity outside the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul says that we will grow in our knowledge so that we be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's the first point, built up in truth. Unity has a doctrinal basis. Second point, our final point, built up in love, growing from our head. Built up in love, growing from our head. So this means loving each other and loving Jesus together. In order to grow in our love for Jesus, we need, we need each other. So you can see verse 13. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. In order to grow in love, in love for Jesus, we need each other. In order to grow in love for Jesus, we need each other. 
we are reading um, a book called Prodigal God over the summer. And in it, um, the writer Tim Keller, he talks about an illustration that C.S. Lewis made in, in his book Four Loves. And he says, he describes his friendship between C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and another guy called Charles Williams. And they were kind of like best friends. They were really, really good friends. And then tragically, Charles Williams died. And C.S. Lewis said, and he said I, I could have thought, now, now that Charles Williams is dead, I, I have more of J.R. Tolkien to myself, more of Roland, which is more to myself. He says, but I realise that I now, because I've lost Charles Williams, I've now got less of Tolkien. I've now got less of my friend. I'll never see the way Roland laughs at one of Charles's jokes ever again. I've got less of him. Because he's saying, you need more than one person to really know another person. When Annie was born, I might have thought to myself, I'm going to lose something of me now. I'll have less of her to myself. But I've discovered a whole new side of me because of Anya that I'd never have discovered on my own. And Lewis says, if that's true of another human being, if as human beings we need each other to know and love another human being, how much more true is that of God? How much more true is that of God? So when Paul says we need to grow in our unity in order to know God, he's really meaning that. He's saying we need each other. You need the person sat next to you who will be able to show you something of God that you could never discover for yourself. But we say to ourselves, well, I don't like other Christians. I don't like the person I'm sat next to. I, don't even, I really don't like the person I chose not to sit next to. <laughs> what do we do? What do we do? So let's look again at verse 16. From him, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. So the first, sentence, the first verse, verse 15 says, we grow into him together. We grow into him together. But verse 16 says, we grow from him. We grow from him our head. Now, this is a slightly weird idea. In, in the ancient times, their, their understanding of the relation of head to body was slightly different to ours. Not only did the head kind of direct the body and tell it where to go, it also nourished the body. It also nourished the body. It's like um, a, a metaphor that's also often used is of like the head of a stream, the head of the stream kind of flowing out and flowing down. Um, so in that way, the head kind of nourishes and fills the body. And that's the image that Paul's adopting here. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And the idea is, is to become more knit together, more in love with each other, we need to know Christ more as our head, the one who directs us and the one who nourishes and cares for us. The more you know him as your head, the more kind of bound with each other we'll be. And so we've got to ask, is our, are our lives directed and nourished by Christ? Is Jesus Christ the centre, the very centre of our lives, our, our very, the very core of our being, so that we can't think without him, we can't feel without him? 
when you make decisions, do you listen to Jesus? When you wake up in the morning, do you say, how can I serve you today, Lord Jesus? When you're disappointed, where do you go for encouragement? When you're hurting, where do you go for comfort? When you're lonely, where do you go for love? When you're sad, where do you go for joy? Where do you go to feel? Where do you go to think? This is what it means to have Christ as our centre, Christ as the head, nourishing our body. And as we're nourished by Christ as the centre of our lives, so we'll be bound with each other. How does that happen? How can I know Jesus as my head in that way? Here's how. We've got to realise once again how much Jesus loves his body. How much Jesus loves his body. Chapter 5 of Ephesians. You turn to it. Paul picks up the metaphor of head and body again, but this time in relation to the marriage, the marriage of a husband and wife. He says to the wife, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And he says to the husbands, in the same way, husbands, you love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is verse 29. After all, no one ever hated his body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Our Lord Jesus Christ left his Father to be united with us. By dying, he put to death the barrier between us so that we could be one. So that we could be one and become his body. He loves us as he loves his own body. He loves us in our diversity. I, Jesus loves me as I love my hand, as I love my elbow, as I love my chin, as I love, well, I don't love my chin or my nose, but <laughs> anyway, that kind of thing. Jesus' happiness is bound up with us. He cares about us so much. He cares when we are sad because he is sad because we are his body. When we hurt, he hurts. He gave himself for us so that we could be one with him. Only if we know this will we make Jesus the centre of our lives. Only when we make Jesus the centre of our lives will we be bound together in oneness. Only then will we be built up in love. Let me finish by praying for us uh, Paul's prayer in chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that ye may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.